Welcome to the Renegade Nutrition Podcast, where we discuss all things wellness. I'm Eleni Welch, nutritionist. And I'm Kay Boyer, health enthusiast. Welcome back, Renegades. Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Nutrition Podcast. I do not have my podcast partner, Kay, with me here today, as you'll see if you're watching the video podcast, but we have an extra special guest on, Dr. Biamonte. And I get to interview him, and I will do my best to be as entertaining as Kay and I combined. So, <laughs> But we're really excited to have Dr. Biamonte on today. He's going to talk to us about all things candida. And before we jump into that, I just want to welcome you onto the show. And I'd love if you could talk to our audience a little bit about your background. Um, well, where you actually, actually, be honest with you, I'm one of the original renegades. Oh, you are one of the original renegades. I, you know, and I'm on the... I'm on the um, most wanted list, <laughs> along with Dr. McCola. Dr. McCola and I are buddies, and we're both on the most wanted list. Well, that's I high started, praise. It is. It is. Yeah. I started. I started studying nutrition back in 1980. Wow. And I graduated with my naturopathic degree in 1984. And the first real gig that I got was working at Grumman Aerospace. Okay. I I came across um, a, a group of aerospace physiologists who were also NDs, they were naturopaths and they were clinical nutritionists. And they were engaged in developing a computer model system for NASA that would be able to measure the astronauts' vitamin requirements when they were in the space station. That's cool. So I joined them in this project in developing this computer model. And it worked It worked quite well until we went over budget. <laughs> and then we were cut. Wow. But we were allowed to keep all the research that we had. Wow. And the, re the research was actually in a computer software program that we call biocybernetics. Bio stands for biological cybernetics is the study of self-regulating mechanisms. And the biocybernetic system was a table-driven computer program. And why we chose a table-driven was because with table-driven, you can just insert new steps of physiology wherever you happen to find them rather than having to rework the whole program. Okay. So when we were cut, we all took the data and we started private practices and we started using the computer um, model on patients. Okay. Now the, the computer could look at blood tests. It standardly looks at it like an SMA 24 or 26 with a CBC and some other things, a urine analysis, but it's also expert at interpreting hair and mineral tests. Cool. Um, also the oats test. Okay. And you can even put in their chiropractic adjustments where the patient is getting adjusted most consistently and the That's computer awesome. thinks with all this. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. In the day, the artificial intelligence level we had at that day at that time was very, very high. Yeah. Um, but we had a, there was a funny thing that happened after we were in practice for about a year. We noticed there was about 30% of the patients who had strange reactions to the programs. Most people, um, got on the programs and the, the computer would tell you what type of diet you needed based on your metabolism. It would tell you all the different supplements you needed based on the blood work. And when I say the blood work, I don't mean by looking at levels high or low in your blood of nutrients. I mean by actually tracing alkaline phosphatase as an example yeah. into the physiology of the chemistry and how it relates to your adrenal glands, to your zinc activated enzymes, et cetera. Right. So I volunteered to find out what was wrong with these 30% of these people. And after quite a lot of study, I found out that they had some kind of 
dysbiosis. Now, we didn't really know what dysbiosis was back then. That was 1985. Yeah. But I I did see they had some imbalance in their flora and their intestinal tract. So we started to test them. At that point, Great Smokies Labs was just becoming popular. Great Smokies is the lab that now is Genova Labs. Okay. And we were very friendly with those guys, Marty Lee and Steve Barron. So they decided to run some stool tests on these patients as a test trial to see what was going on with them. Sure enough, we found out they had no friendly flora, and most of them had candida showing on the test. Hmm. Later on, we discovered that when you do a stool sample on somebody, whether candida is there or not, it makes no difference. If there's no friendly flora, there's automatically candida. We hmm. wouldn't understand that candida was difficult to culture in those days, okay. where the bacterial flora is more reliable. So no, I didn't really know what candida was. I mean, I knew essentially what it was, but I didn't know too much about it. So I told these patients, this is how ignorant I was. I said, go to your doctor and tell him you have candida overgrowth. Right. He'll cure you of it and then come back to me and I'll put you back on the program. So we got phone calls like, oh, the doctor says there's no such thing or he says everybody has it and all these things like this. So I said, okay, well, this is obviously not going to work. Go to Dr. Atkins because now I was in Manhattan at the time. And Bob Atkins was in private practice at Full Gear. We had, um, as far as functional medical doctors, we had Dr. Atkins. We had um, Ronald Hoffman. There really weren't that many doctors. But I said, go to these guys. These guys will know how to handle it. So the response we got back was, well, this was the the patient said, this is much better. They understood what it was, and they they agreed with you. And and they put me on nice statin and a, a diet. And I got, I was amazed. They said, I couldn't believe how good I felt for like the first month. And then all the symptoms came back and I didn't, didn't change anything. So I, mm-hmm. I didn't understand what that was about. So I started scratching my head and I said, I have to figure this out. And that was how many years ago, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I, it took me about 11 years to really understand the subject matter and to see what I was dealing with. I, I must have read every textbook on mycology and, and flora and the biome that existed at that time. And I started to construct a program that was based on certain axioms, I will call them. What I did was I also collected every, all the data I could on what all the other doctors were doing that was wrong. Mm-hmm. And I strung it all together and I went back to the mycology books to proof out what my theories were. So that's how I developed my treatments. Now, my, my treatment is described in my book, The Candida Chronicles. There, It goes through four essential phases of treatment. And, well, actually five, if you want to count the initial one, which is phase zero. There's five. And amongst the axioms, the most probably, the two probably most important was, number one, where doctors fail in treating candida is they cause the candida to mutate. Hmm. And how you cause candida to mutate is by exposing it to any antifungal, pharmaceutical, or botanical for more than 21 days. Candida consists of mother cells and daughter cells. And after 21 days of being exposed to the same antifungal, the mother cells start to mutate, and they start to impart genetic data to the daughter cells, telling them how to change their metabolism to avoid being killed. This is how you get drug-resistive strains of candida. Yeah, makes sense. Niastatin is the most famous drug for candida, and it's caused more drug-resistive strains than anything you can think of, because the average doctor puts the person on Niastatin for two, three, four months, five months, and by then, it's wow. it's genetically flipped to candida tropicalis, 
or one of the other more, um, let's say, advanced mutated strains. Wow. So I found that was a major mistake. So in my program, I started having people, we, we would take three or four different antifungals and we would rotate them. Now, in present time, we know which ones to use based on a urine test I subsequently developed. I developed a urine test that's not too dissimilar from the oats test. It's a little different, but it's along the same line. But there, there's a, a configuration of the different organic acids that we see that tell us which are the best botanicals that you can use. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Yeah, the, yes. the other thing I discovered was that probiotics were a complete, utter waste of time until you have removed the candida. Because what we found in doing these stool studies with um, the then Great Smokies labs is that we would give people hundreds of dollars worth of probiotics and they would never show up in the stool until we had reduced the candida to a certain degree. Wow, because the candida was out competing the probiotics? Or? It was It was like, yeah, the pol there's a polarization that occurs with microorganisms, just like with magnets. Okay. When we were a kid and we played with magnets and we put the the two ends together and they would repel each other. Yeah. The same thing happens with microorganisms. So yes, you were right. They're, they're competing in that way. And the candida prevents the probiotic from re-inoculating. It pushes it away and stops oh, it. Interesting. So you, you've got to really have to remove the candida first before the probiotics are going are gonna to be able to sit. The other thing I discovered, which was totally by accident, was that there is a list of vitamins that physically feed candida and make it spread. Really? Yes. And I'll give you a, a little taste of this. The two most popular antifungal drugs most likely have been nystatin and ketoconazole. If you read the, the pharmaceutical data and the mechanism of action of these drugs, you find out that ketoconazole works to kill candida by blocking candida's uptake of vitamin D. Okay. Nystatin works by blocking candida's uptake of iron. Okay. Now, with this knowledge, if you were a candida patient, would you want to take vitamin D or iron? No. <laughs> that wouldn't make sense. No. no. You'd be feeding the candida. <laughs> well, you subsequently found out that CoQ10 is a major feeder of candida. Really? Yeah. And there's a, there's a whole list of these nutrients that feed candida. That's, it's in my book for someone to look at and then to avoid. Right. We also, we also found... Um, that there's another list of, of vitamins and nutrients that block antifungals from working. And basically, that is the antioxidant group. Okay. So just about virtually any antioxidant that you take while you're trying to kill candida with some botanical or drug is going to neutralize the effect. Interesting. Why that is, is how most drugs work that kill, well, most drugs that are antiparasitic or antifungal are technically classified as chemotherapy. Whether you know it, it sounds scary, but right. that's technically the classification. Right. Chemotherapeutic agents work by creating oxidative stress against the membrane of the cell you're trying to kill. Right. So therefore, if you're taking high amounts of antioxidants, it's going to stop that oxidative stress from damaging the cell wall and then permeating the cell wall and then killing the organism or the cell, the cancer cell. Right. That makes sense. So... Um, over the years in putting my treatment plan together, I was gathering all this data and then aligning this data to actually put the protocols together and get the protocols to work. So what we found ultimately is we have our phase zero program, which works like a colon cleanse to eliminate parasites and candida and bacteria, which are symbiotic that live together in the coated with the biofilm. Hmm. 
we first get those off. Then we use botanicals that work systemically to kill candida and its cohorts systemically all over the body, your lymph system, your glands, your organs. Then we go to the second phase is where we kill the candida really deep in your intestinal tract. That is the form of the candida or the growth stage that repels the probiotics. Hmm. Um, it's the hypha form, which also digs into your intestinal tract and damages your border brush cells that causes then leaky gut syndrome. Hmm. Right. So once we kill off that layer of candida, at that point, we have two ways we can go. If the person's developed leaky gut, we have to then address the leaky gut and repair it, or we can start re-inoculating with probiotics. I discovered very early that people who truly have leaky gut, when they're exposed to probiotics, often react really badly. And in, and in what ways do they react? What did you Well, they see? react allergically, and it worsens oh, wow. their autoimmune symptoms. And okay. the reason why it happens is because the probiotics are leaking into their bloodstream just like everything else does, and that the immune system reacts against the probiotic like it was a foreign invader. Okay, wow. So I've had many patients come to me, sort of sit down in front of me with a smirk on their face, and they say, I have the worst case of leaky gut that you have ever seen in your whole career. <laughs> and they'll go on to tell me all the doctors they've been to, everything they've taken, everything they've tried, all this. And I'll, I'll listen very politely, usually. But at, at one point, I have to ask them, I said, well, I got all that, but have you ever been tested for leaky gut? And I'll get a resounding, well, I don't have to be tested because I know I have it. I have all these symptoms. Well, here's where we test the person and about half of them don't have it. Interesting. Half of these people have spent 10 years treating, them for a, a, treating themselves for a condition they don't have. What they actually have is mast cell problems, which are mimicking leaky gut. Hmm. The mast cell activation can give you very similar symptoms. Yeah, makes sense. So they may not have leaky gut, but they everyone with candida has mast cell activation. The difference is whether or not they have leaky gut as a foundation to that problem, which is um, sort of spurring on an autoimmune process, or whether or not it just goes directly to mast cell. Wow, interesting. Wow. So could you tell for, there's one thing I want to circle back to there too, just real quickly, but... Um, on the antioxidant side of things where the antioxidants were neutralizing the anti-candida. Um, is it any antioxidants you consume even in food? So like antioxidants, rich foods, berries and things like that, or is it supplemental? No, not so much foods. Supplemental it's more supplements. Antioxidants. Got it. Supplements have the high enough dose. Yeah. And kind of in singular there. form. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then for our listeners, what are, and maybe they're sort of ubiquitous, but what are some of the signs and symptoms of a candida overgrowth that somebody could look for where maybe it might help like the pieces connect together in their mind of, oh yeah, this might be what's going on with me? It's a very good question. I often ask people to sort of make a timeline. Go back to where you were not ill. Yeah. Where you're really comfortable that you weren't ill sort of look at you can do this with a calendar or just by drawing a line and putting the dates there like yeah. the years go back to where you really weren't ill then go forward and then see if you were on antibiotics see if you were on cortisone prednisone estrogen medications if you started taking antacid pills if you were in an accident if you you, you changed your diet if you you started doing a lot of drugs or something and then after that point can you identify when you gradually started getting sick mm-hmm and the first thing the person finds is they started to become fatigued for no apparent reason. Wow. 
don't know why but fatigue is the first thing that hits them. Yeah. The next thing is they started noticing gastrointestinal problems, constipation, diarrhea, bloating, gas, etc. Then they'll start to notice that cognitive problems started to come in. They started to not remember people's names or they were cognitively very slow. And then eventually they can start developing illnesses, which are part of the candida group. They could start developing eczema, psoriasis, asthma. Um, it would be called ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, whatever name you want to give it. But it was that irritable bowel type of thing. And that is the progression very often of someone with candida. Sometimes it can be, depending on the person genetically, it can be unique. But that's a general scope of what happens with the candida patient and the order in which those things occur. Well, certainly sounds like things some of my clients have reported and presented with over the years. The key is if you ask, ask the patient, does anything you eat or drink or do seem to directly flare it up? Like if the, if the fellow says, if you say to the fellow, well, what do you do? Um, you say it's worse on Saturday. It's worse on the weekends. So what do you do Friday night? Well, I'm out with my friends drinking beer. Mm-hmm. Okay, so right there, that's it's a pretty easy one. Right yeah. there, you know, beer and candida don't mix at all. The maltose in beer flares candida up, makes it grow. So, of course, the guy's really sick on the weekend because he was drinking beer Friday night. So the same thing would be true of somebody eating more carbs, even something as sim- as something as um, innocent as the person training for a marathon, because in in our day and age there's still a lot of people who carb load. Right. Despite Stu Middleman's work and a lot of people's work, who actually have shown that with long distance running, you're better off doing um low carb and allowing your body to, to burn fat, like on right. the Atkins approach. Right. There's still people who do the carb loading thing, and when they do the carb loading, then after they they do that and they have their big run, they're wiped out. And they're far worse off than their friends are. Well, again, what happened is the person ate all these carbs. Yeah. Sugar and carbs feed candida and make it worse. So anything a person eats or drinks, which is sweet or high in sugar or high in starch, high in carbs, is going to make the condition worse. Now, you might, if they consumed some of those things, how might they feel afterwards? What are some of the things they might notice, like in the immediate um, term? Fermentation. One of the first things they'll get is from gastric fermentation. They'll start to feel bloated and gassy excessively. Then they'll get tired. Mm-hmm. And they may get itchy. Their rectum may itch. Their groin may itch. Their mouth might itch. Their eyes might itch. Yeah. Itching in the ear, the ears, the eyes, the nose, and the throat, and the genitals are very common with candida. Wow. Okay. So any of those, any of those areas could flare up. Wow. Okay. So if somebody's listening to this and that's describing you, <laughs> then that's a pretty good sign that you might have a candida overgrowth. Um, Especially if they do the, the trick I described before when you make the time track. Right. Yeah. Find where you are. Because then you, a lot of people will say, well, I was fine here. Oh, wait a second. Here, this is when I had my tonsils removed or my wisdom teeth removed and I was on those antibiotics. And then I noticed after that, I was never quite the same or something to that effect. Yeah. Wow. And I think that's such a great approach because it really requires the person to do some deep digging and searching themselves, which engages them in that process, which I think is important. If somebody's going to heal, they need to be engaged in the process. They need to understand the cause and the effect so that they're more compliant with following through on the protocols. Well, the brand of healthcare that you and I are involved in requires the person to be somewhat proactive and to take responsibility So, uh, for their own situation because we're interested in causes. Right. 
You know, if you if you listen to the AMA in just about every state in this country, it's illegal to say you can cure anything. Right. Right. And that's a fact. Right. You can't say you can cure something. I don't care if you're who you are. I don't care if you're um, Anthony Fauci. Right. You're not allowed to say you can cure anything. <laughs> right. Right. And by the way, anyone who wants to read a good book about Anthony Fauci, um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has written a book called The Real Anthony Fauci. You might find it very interesting if you, I if have you read it. it. And I recommend oh, you do. it. I do. Very <laughs> I good. recommend it. One of my favorite books. But however, you, you have to pay. The patient has to be engaged because we're interested in finding causes. Right. And causes are a lot more um, involved to find and correct than taking Prozac and right. just being oblivious to the problems. So, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, this is just really fascinating. And what percentage would you say of patients that were coming into your clinic? had this candida overgrowth initially it was around 30 percent now it's 95 90 percent 95 because oh. everyone comes to me they've already been to 10 doctors right so they everyone comes to me because i'm the alleged expert who's going to handle all their failed treatments right so because of that the majority of people who come to me say i heard your podcast i've been fighting candida for years you know something like this right so you can't go, but we have to go by the original statistics. And what's interesting, originally, um, when my office was in downtown Manhattan, about three blocks away from the World Trade Center, we had a lab that we had, and we were testing stool samples on people to determine the strain of candida they had. And what was very interesting is that the people who came to us who didn't know they had candida, where we discovered they had candida, they pretty much 95% of the time had candida albicans. Okay. The people who came to us who were the veterans, the war veterans fighting candida with, you know, 10 other doctors for all these years didn't have candida albicans. They all had candida tropicalis okay. or candida galbrata. Because it which mutated. Are mutated strains, exactly. Wow, that is really fascinating. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I think I could ask like, a thousand <laughs> questions to follow up. Right but, um, what do you think is contributing to the candida overgrowth in our population? Believe it or not, one of the things you would not suspect is GMO foods. Really? Yeah. GMO foods are a contributor to the body to set it up to be weak so you will get candida. If you go to Italy and Europe where they've banned the GMO foods, you'll find there's a lower rate. And what's interesting is my candida patients who go to Italy on vacation suddenly find they can eat all these foods in Italy that they can't eat in the United States because they react to them. Right. So it's the GMO food that we have. Interesting. Standardly, the standard answer I'm supposed to give you is that it's antibiotic use. The, in the Merck manual, the Merck manual says the widespread use of broad-spectrum um, indiscriminate use of broad spectrum antibiotics leads to candida, which is true. If you take antibiotics, you kill your friendly bacteria. Right. Cortisone, sense. prednisone, estrogen, these hormones will cause candida. They pump it up just like the hormone will pump up a muscle man or something like that. Antacids are often not um, suspected, but antacid medications will cause candida if you take them long enough because the alkalinity that they create in your intestinal tract promotes the growth. Candida loves alkalinity. Candida doesn't like acid. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Candida thrives when your intestinal pH is above 7.2, 7.4. And when you use antacids a lot, especially the, the more powerful proton pump inhibitors, you're going to get that, that alkalinity in your intestines that will lead to candida. Wow. So it sounds like what you know, 90% of the American population is on in some way or another. <laughs> yeah. Can, you know, candida is, even though it is true that people can get candida by uh, being on a really high sugar diet or being a drug addict, or if you get into an accident and your immune system crashes, a lot of the cases of candida are iatrogenic. They're doctor-induced or pharmaceutical-induced, which is one of because people are constantly asking me, why doesn't my doctor know about this? Why don't doctors know about this? Well, the truth is they do know about this, but if I dare you to find a doctor who's going to come out and say, you know, by the way, those antibiotics I've been giving you to all you people, well, it's caused candida. Right. <laughs> you know, I, he's not going to sit around for the class action lawsuit that he's going to get hit with in that case. Right. So doctors tend to shy away from the concept of candida, and especially that anything that they do have has, has anything to do with causing it. Right. And I, I've heard what you referenced, too, that some of your patients came back and said to you in the early days, like, oh, my doctor said everybody has candida. And I've certainly heard that. So- What do you think about that? And is it more that everybody has candida and some people have an overgrowth of it and that's what becomes a problem? Is there a point at which it's neutral? Out of the mouths of babes right there. Okay. That's the only thing we care about. We don't care about, everyone does have candida and it's normal to have candida. Candida helps stimulate your immune system. And candida is also what decomposes your body after you die. And bombing fluid is nothing more than a, a huge dose of antifungal. Wow. That, you're, that you're getting <clears throat> that's what that's the in nature the the um purpose of candida wow interesting so we don't care about everybody has candida we know everyone has candida we're interested only in overgrowth right and luckily we have the tools nowadays gradually we've been accumulating the testing tools where we can now separate overgrowth to compare to a, a, what we would normally expect to have in your biome well, and, and that's so huge because I'm just thinking of, even for my clients, the people that I notice have low vitamin D status or, you know, need to be taking something like CoQ10 because they're on a drug or medication that's inhibiting it. Statins, yeah. Yeah, statins. And I've yep. never I've never considered that that could, that intervention could potentially be causing some harm if they had a candida overgrowth. Mm-hmm. So that's really helping open my eyes to, okay, there's also more background work to do on is the is the person exhibiting some of those classical signs of candida overgrowth and then, you know, ordering testing. And it sounds like you've done some stool testing. What do you think about the tests that are available? Like I know Genova Diagnostics, I've used some of their GI maps before. Are those good for detecting candida or what do you recommend? There's, there are three principal tests I use. I use a, the oats test from Great Plains down Mosaic Labs. Okay. Because the organic acid is a valid parameter. Right. We use stool tests with the caveat. You have to know how to interpret stool tests. Years ago, when Great Smokies and Genova were first starting, I used to teach seminars on how to interpret the test. And we had to put in a big disclaimer because the FDA didn't like this. But what the truth is is that the bacteria cultures are more accurate than mycology cultures. It's harder to get candida into that little vial with the formaldehyde and then sending it to the lab and getting it to grow on the Petri dish than it is bacteria. Bacteria travel 
really easy. Hmm. So if you have a stool sample, and if it shows a lack of the friendly E. coli species, bifido species, or lactobacillus, you know the person has candida. If the, if the test does not show any candida, that doesn't mean anything. Okay. Especially if you're going to start seeing H. pylori, Klebsiella, Citrobacter, and some of these other very uh, nasty dysbiotic bacteria also present in high amounts. That is a profile of the person who has candida. Wow. Yeah, well, I've definitely seen at least some of those elevated when I've looked at patients' stool samples. So that's really helpful to know. Um, and then- so you, so you look at that, you look at that profile, and then you look at the patient's symptoms. Right. And that's how you can put it together. The, the third test that we have is the one I developed, which is a urine test that is self-administered. The person does this at home on a first morning urine sample. It measures the amount of bacteria putrefaction uh, from bacteria and parasites on their proteins. It measures uh, chemical organic acids coming from candida living in the gut. And it also measures free radicals that candida releases that are unique to the candida. Wow. So that, that test our patients do on a regular basis at home and then helps us. That's a big advantage that we have in my practice yeah. because you can't be testing a person for candida every few weeks. Right. It's too expensive. Right. This test is inexpensive enough that the person could do it at home. So it explains the test explains their progress. The test has a, a unique reaction that when the person's having die off, there are certain parameters that get markedly worse. So when the person comes to us and say, gee, I feel sick, I don't know if this is working. If we see these certain parameters elevated, we tell them, no, you're just having die off. No wonder you feel bad. Yeah. So you're doing you're doing the right thing. It is working. Wow. And honestly, uh, for anybody who's ever had to do a stool sample, a urine test sounds much better. because <laughs> The process of doing a stool sample isn't like wonderful. <laughs> Not that glamorous. No, it's it's not glamorous. So, wow, how cool. And so then patients can do that themselves. And then I think you said this, but that would probably detect too the difference of whether they have the albicans or the tropicalis. Unfortunately, no. The urine test can't do that. It can't denote species. Gotcha. It only it only tells us about activity of the organism. But, but to be honest with you, a lot of people have asked me this over the years. Um, we don't really need to know anymore the species. Because we've refined our protocols. So in, the, in our protocols, we only use botanicals that we know will kill every known species. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And just a, a curious question. Do you think there are species of candida out there that we haven't identified yet? Have you ever run into somebody who just doesn't respond well? Well, there's the new one that's just come out of Japan, um, which is highly, highly drug resistant. Really? Yeah, I'm having a blonde moment right now. I'm not remembering the um, pardon it, pardon me for any other blondes out there. Um, <laughs> it's okay, Kay's not is, here today, so. <laughs> okay, well, this is good. But there is a species that's coming out of Japan, and as soon as the name clicks back into my head, I'll let you. Yeah. I'll, I will tell you that this species is really nasty. Wow, interesting. There have been beds. There have been nasty species from Japan for some reason. Um, there was um. There was one species that was so powerful that it literally caused people to become legally drunk. It would ferment so much alcohol. Wow. And that's not the same species we have now. The species we have now is Candida auris. Okay. This is the new one coming from Japan that's highly drug resistive. Um, we, we've already discovered, it's interesting, 
We've discovered already 11 botanicals that will kill Candida auris. So if Candida auris ever became really widespread, you'd want to combine Candida auris treatment with pharmaceutical and with these botanicals to, to kill it effectively. Wow. Wow. Well, I think this is such great information. And so in today's population, do you think it's roughly about like 50% of people or do you have any guess? I mean, I know what comes into your clinic is obviously kind of yeah, skewing the yeah. data, but yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, it's hard to say because I only I only see what comes to me, right? So it's it's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, cataloging... I would say during a time it it changes. You see, like let's look at back um, around two thousand and one, two thousand two, when we had all the scares, right? With the anth anthrax, right? So what were they? What was everybody popping like um, candy? Was Cipro the antibiotic? So, and you're going to find this happens in different populations. So what typically happens is with Lyme disease, the person has Lyme. They go on the antibiotics to kill Lyme. They get better. Their blood test shows that a lot of the co-infections are gone. Person still doesn't feel right. Hmm. In fact, they might feel bad in a different way now. Hmm. The obvious has happened. You've killed the Lyme disease, but you've given them candida. Right. With, with, with anthrax, same thing. A person may be taking the antibiotic to fight the anthrax, but now he gets candida. And there are all of these things that you have to really watch because it's like a slap in the back of your head <laughs> that you're not looking for. Right. Wow. Um, and so f are there any lifestyle factors aside from foods we consume or medications we take that might contribute to a candida overgrowth? Well, recreational drugs, too much alcohol. Yeah. Okay. Swimming in heavily chlorinated pools. Really? Can do it because the chlorine kills your friendly bacteria. Wow. So for people that swim for regular exercise, that might be an issue. Yeah, they, well, they just need to make sure they don't gulp down <laughs> too much of the chlorinated water. That's sure. the, first, the first thing I tell them is be careful with that. But um, life, as far as candida goes, it is really usually doctor-induced, which then becomes aggravated by um, the diet. And especially, although, you know, people nowadays, people are, are, are getting into keto, People are low carb diets have been um, at the forefront now for years. So people are becoming more aware. And I think that the reckless intake of sugar, going back to Carlton Fredericks, the great nutritionist, one of the greatest nutritionists of our time, one of the leaders in the field, Carlton Fredericks was the, the first to come out to support the low carb diet and talk about the dangers of sugar, as did Roger Williams. Um, he, Roger Williams is one of the first nutritionists that acknowledged that white sugar actually lowered people's white blood counts. And then you have the other people in the field who've been pioneers, Dr. Robert Atkins. Um, so people have become more aware. And because of that, it's not as bad as it could have been. Hmm. Wow. And you mentioned that uh, candida overgrowth may precede something like an autoimmune condition. And in, in that case, when you're working with somebody who has an autoimmune condition, do you go first for the candida overgrowth? Because Always. always. You have to. Yeah, makes There's sense. There's no other way to do it. And so I'll go so far as saying I know doctors, very, very reputable doctors, who will, who will tell you 
that there is no such thing as autoimmune conditions. It's all caused by candida. Hmm. All Hashimoto's is caused by candida and leaky gut. I know a doctor who will go so far as telling you there's no such thing as diabetes, that diabetes is actually a low thyroid condition that's caused by candida. Wow, interesting. So there, there are people out there who, who can become very, um, very taken up by this uh, in, in these concepts. So I would say, uh, and now I can't, I wouldn't say that it's all 100% true, mm -hmm. but I will say I've seen enough cases um, of, of these situations where I understand where they're coming and how they could think this. Right, sure. So perhaps for somebody who is working with an autoimmune condition who's tried the autoimmune protocol and other you know efforts to try and help that and they aren't seeing the results, it may be a need to treat the candida first and then return to those efforts. Well, this, the sneaky thing, is that something has to be triggering the autoimmune condition. Right. So if you've ruled out that the person's mercury toxic or, or whatever, copper toxic, then the autoimmune condition is usually being generated by their biome, which is often the unsuspected thing because the biome is there naturally. So it's something that's almost intrinsic in the generation of it. Right. You're, you're generating this from within. So it's people are always looking for... Well, the, well, I can't say this, but because, you know, there's still a lot of doctors who will go into this thing. We don't know what the cause is. There's no cure and all this. Right. But when you start looking at all the cases of people with rheumatoid arthritis where you've got their their leaky gut and candida is gone and all of a sudden the RA factor goes negative in their blood, the ANA levels drop to normal, their sediment rates drop to normal. You start seeing all these things happen in these people. After a while, you can't ignore it anymore. Right. Most autoimmune conditions are being caused, they're being generated either by the bacteria or something. It's the biome first. This is why so many doctors, there was that book written, Death Begins in the Colon, by the, I forgot who that was years ago. Sure. But th there's a reason why a lot of these doctors started to conclude the things they did. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, uh, I've, I'm I'm just learning so much on a clinical level here. <laughs> um, for somebody who goes through the program of treating the candida overgrowth, are they prone to relapse? Do you see that happen often? I mean, are more people are some people just more susceptible to candida overgrowth? I guess is what I'm asking. And then do those people tend to relapse? There's a there's a list of genetic genetic SNPs. Probably the most important one is MMP-1. Okay. MMP-1 is a collagen error that people can be born with, which will tend them towards lung cancer, even though they don't smoke, and candida due to weak collagen in their intestinal tract, which allows the candida to hang on. Interesting. And not detach. There are several other SNPs that predispose the person to candida. And those people who have those genetic weaknesses, unfortunately, have to be more on top of it and be more careful with their diet, with medications and whatnot. For those who don't have those SNPs, if they go through my program correctly, they should not relapse. Gotcha. Relapse is a sign that we did something wrong or we skimped somewhere. Um, the, the, the phases of the program that are involved with stopping relapse are phase three and four. Phase three addresses uh, toxicity and metabolism, and phase four addresses the immune system. So the first thing we do on phase three is we look for metal toxicities. 
copper, mercury. And the reason for that is metal toxicities are more important than chemical toxicities hmm. because medical uh, metal toxicities disarm your immune system and don't allow you to properly detoxify chemical toxicities. Hmm. So yeah. we have to handle the metal toxicities first and then handle any imbalance with hormones. And then we essentially rebalance the person's amino acids and all their nutrients. You do that, there's a really good chance they're not going to relapse unless there's some other inherent immune problem. And that's where we handle that on phase four. And what do you do then in in your phase four? Uh, we test all their immune fa fra fractions, all the antibody fractions. We look at their T cells, very similar to what you would do with an AIDS patient. Right, sure. And then we fix that. And those things respond really easily to the right nutrients and Chinese herbs like astragalus and things like that if you've done phase three correctly. Right. It's like every on my program, every phase that you do, if you do it correctly, the next phase becomes easier to do because you have a foundation there. Wow. And, and so um, for somebody who has the genetic SNPs then, what are some of the things that they could implement just in general lifestyle to help prevent the relapses? Well, you've got to look at their individual SNPs and they have to be on nutrients and botanicals and nutraceuticals that support those SNPs. Makes like in sense. the, in the um, example I brought up with MMP-1, the pycnogenol family, is of great help because the pycnogenols help strengthen that collagen. Hmm. Okay. Wow. Just as an example. And do you check genetic SNPs as part of your program? Um, yes, we do, it's, but it's much later. The reason why we do it later is because doing it earlier is a huge expense, hmm. and doing it earlier isn't going to change much of what we're going to do in those early phases. Sure. So we try to space out the testing to do the testing at a point where we're then actually going to really use it right? and not just sit on it and say, well, you know, this, this is this, but we'll get to that later because that right. doesn't really help the person. Right. Yeah, sure. And and they probably want to spread out their expenses as well. Exactly. That's yeah. the key. Now, this is such a big, my program can take a year or two easy. So because of that, we have to really help the person spread out the expenses and how, utilize their finances at the correct time and doing the correct tests. Because I could um, just have someone come in, we could do thousands of dollars worth of tests on them in the beginning, and it's really not warranted. It's not going to really help that much. Right, right. And most people who come to me have already done thousands of dollars worth of tests with other right. doctors. I was so I have the advantage say. of being able to see all this data that they've accumulated. Yeah, I was just going to say, and they've probably already spent a lot of money trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. That's true. It's unfortunate that insurance does not cover really probably any of this testing, right? Some of it does if the medical doctor will write a letter of medical necessity saying I'm prescribing that this patient, Joe Smith, see Dr. Biamonte for this and this. They it, Then it depends on their insurance plan. Wow, yeah. But, it's, but as you know, the, the reason you're doing your podcast <laughs> is because we're trying to change things. Yeah. We're trying to enlighten people and change things. And what we run up against is big pharma. Right. Because in, uh, medical doctors are basically taught in school. Um, they're either taught this in the in the in the men's room or in the ladies room when no one else is listening <laughs> or they're told this as they're leaving the great hall of knowledge that there's a few rules. Mm -hmm. Now, you have to know first, don't kill anybody. Mm -hmm. Second is don't cure anybody. Mm hmm.
Because if you kill them or you cure them, they're not going to be around to take the prescriptions you're going to give them. Yeah, right. And then that puts big pharma out of business. Right. So. Yeah, if you, um, for our listeners, if you want to hear more on that side of things, uh, Dr. Wolfson has a book. He's the uh, paleo cardiologist. He has a book where he was a medical doctor and he does talk about some of those behind the scenes things that were happening that were making him uncomfortable that then moved him into a functional medicine practice. So that's an interesting read too for anybody who wants to just know a little bit about what you're up against when you're working first within one, the medical system. The first, first one was Dr. Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn wrote a book back in the, probably in the 60s or 70s called The Medical Heretic. He called himself a medical heretic. Mm -hmm. And especially on vaccines and inoculations, he just let it rip yeah. in the book. Yeah. And and what, did you say the title of the book was The Medical Heretic? Yeah, The Medical Heretic by Dr. Mendelssohn. He was the first one who really stuck his neck out, I believe. So anybody can look that up too, just for, mm -hmm. I think it's important to know what the limitations are of, of our current health system, because then we know where we can and cannot utilize it, right? Um, wow, what a, what a fascinating topic. I mean, it's really opening up my eyes as a practitioner, and I'm sure for several people listening here, it's kind of setting off maybe some light bulbs in their head of, oh yeah, this this kind of resonates with what I've been experiencing, or I've had this issue that's been ongoing for a long time. For somebody who is listening who thinks they may have a candida overgrowth, what should their first step today be? Go on Amazon, look for my book, The Candida Chronicles. Get your hands on the book, read through the book, and that will give you some some stability of idea in terms of where you are and then what it is you need to do. And if somebody is interested in working with you and your program, how do they find you? Well, they can just find me on the internet. All they have to do is search my name and um, they'll find me. The main website we have is health-truth.com. Okay. But they can also find me on my two other websites, the New York City Candida Doctor and the New York City Thyroid Doctor. People ask me, why do you have a thyroid website? It's because thyroid and candida are so, so intermingled with each other that um, it forced me to become a thyroid expert, so to speak. And somebody who's having thyroid issues would probably be searching for a thyroid doctor versus a candida doctor. And so that yes. kind of helps too. That can help too. Yeah, bring That's people true. in. Is there anything on the topic of candida that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered today? COVID-19 is interesting. Yes, let's talk about that. When COVID hit, we had a lot of patients coming to us who had who had um, successfully completed our program who were experiencing a relapse. And when we tested them, we found that sure enough, they got COVID and COVID caused candida. Interesting. Um, to come back. What was even more interesting than that were the people who were being vaccinated, who were developing candida after being vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So it led me to look like what's what was the common denominator between getting COVID or getting vaccinated? Well, it's the spike protein, hmm. the spike protein that's both in COVID or was attached to COVID and is in the vaccine uh, seems to stimulate uh, production of candida in the body. I'm not sure exactly. We're not sure what the mechanism is because it's so complex. Right. When you're dealing with COVID, COVID is something that's totally unique because it's man-made, it's a bioweapon. Right. And as a biological weapon, it's harder to understand. It's not your influenza. Right. But, but there's something that COVID does where it causes candida and the vaccine does the same thing. 
Hmm. Wow. Fascinating. So somebody may notice like if they wrote out their timeline, <laughs> the yes. I felt good up till this I got uh, COVID yeah. or yes. until I got vaccinated. And a great book to read. There's a bunch of them, but one of one of probably one of the best books to read is by Dr. McCola, uh, "The Truth About COVID 19 Yeah, I have that book as well. <laughs> okay. And that is a really fascinating read. That's, I've actually lent it that out really to people. That gives you the big picture. Yeah. yeah, yeah, gives you the big picture. Absolutely, yes, because I think it's it's really helpful to understand where that's coming from again, so that you know what you're up against. Up against, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to talk with us about today that we we didn't end up covering? Um, the, the, well, I won't say to people that it's very it's a very sneaky and very um, difficult condition to sort of pin down because it overlaps into so many areas. And this is why I feel personally I, I have to I have heart for for the patients because you'll get somebody. People are always looking to find what the real deal is. Yeah. At least those who are enlightened enough are, and they can. You can get, you can drown in a swim of data. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because there's so much data out there, and a lot of it isn't properly understood and interpreted. You can get somebody with mercury toxicity, and they're going to blame everything on mercury. Right. But mercury causes other conditions. Mercury can cause candida. If you develop excess mercury, it will cause candida in your body. So you have to be careful to look at what's. We were calling it at one point the um, the concentric circles of candida. It's like you can have candida in the middle and then draw these circles that are all overlapping each other of other ailments that, that occur. Like we can have candida with thyroid problems. Now, guess what also is a very common suppressant of thyroid? It's mercury. Mm -hmm. Mercury, mercury and copper toxicity all in their own way downregulate thyroid function. But then you've got also candida downregulating thyroid function. And you get, to say, get the same thing with adrenal function. There's a host of different ailments a person can get, and it's the same thing. Mercury, copper, candida suppresses your adrenals. In fact, I guarantee, in my practice, I've seen this time after time, that once the person's biome is put back together, one of the first things you have to address with them almost always is their adrenal function, which, is, which has been depressed, so depressed by the candida that they still feel sluggish to some degree. Wow. That's usually the last, their adrenal thyroid function is the last thing. But so many of these things overlap is my point. Yeah. Mast cell activation. Mast cell activation is just a, your body's response to having candida. People go around today talking about mast cell activation like it's something new. Yeah. We knew, we knew about mast cell activation 20 years ago. It's nothing new. It's just that now it's being acknowledged and people are trying to sell you pills that they're making for mast cell activation. 20 years ago, when there was no supplements for mast cell activation, nobody talked about it. Now there are supplements for it, so everybody talks about it. Right. Makes sense. And some of the more cro like chronic conditions, heart disease, um, diabetes, cancer, are those things you've also found linked to candida overgrowth? Absolutely. Every single one you just mentioned is. Wow. Uh, candida affects heart disease, and it's, but they all have a way that they do it. Like there are certain bacteria that you find with candida, which will affect the aortic valve that will cause calcification wow. in, the, in the arteries. Uh, with diabetes, there are particular parasites. And this, is all, this has been known for a long time. You go on the internet, you do a search for parasites and diabetes, and you'll find that there are known parasites that infect your pancreas and cause diabetes. Hmm. So for virtually every illness you name, there, they, there's a connection. 
right. between candida and the concentric circles of the immediate candida maladies that you right. can find. And probably with gut health overall, since having that candida overgrowth is most likely influencing, like you mentioned, you know, the polarization, if candida mm -hmm. are repelling different bacteria, then I imagine that person's microbiome looks off entirely. Yes, this is true. Wow. Wow. How, how interesting. I mean, yeah, what an eye-opening episode for people to hear. Cause one, one thing I'll mention, not, not directly candida related, but I'll mention this because my office just sent out a newsletter on this. As we've been investigating this paradoxal B12 deficiency. Okay. And paradoxal B12 deficiency is a condition where the person's levels of B12 in their serum are elevated, even though they're not taking a B12 supplement. Okay. And we've been we've been looking into this since I can I can tell you I can't tell you how long before the stars were in disguise <laughs> we were investigating this to try to find out what the devil this was, because we see the same phenomena in a hair test. If you do a hair mineral test from doctor's data or trace elements, you're going to see elevated levels of cobalt in this person. Hmm. Cobalt is the center of the B12 molecule. On a hair test, cobalt represents B12. Uh, if you look at the organic test, the, or the organic test is another, which um, will measure B12 activity as opposed to level. See, So hair and, and serum can measure B12 level Organics tests measures B12 activity. Right. And we've noticed they don't jive. Interesting. They don't jive. We finally found out why this was. It's a little it's a little kooky, but we found out how and why it happens. Vitamin B2, riboflavin, is essential for activation of B12. I don't know why vitamin companies don't put the coenzyme form of B2 in with B12, they never have done it. I don't know why. It's I learned this when I was in high school that vitamin B2 was involved with B12. Then right. when I was in nutrition school, I learned the exact pathway. But nonetheless, that's a fact. If a person has a deficiency of iodine, of the trace mineral molybdenum, or the trace mineral selenium, it causes B2 not to activate. Okay. So you can have low iodine, low selenium, low molybdenum, and that causes you to have inactive levels of B2, riboflavin, which then you don't have the, the riboflavin to activate B12. So the B12 just accumulates in your body and elevates because it's not being utilized. Once you get the B2 active, the B2 sucks the B12 in and gets it utilized. Hmm. Now, where, where this can get a little bit um, confusing is where people employ this protocol and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. That's what they have to do at that point is check themselves for mercury and copper toxicity because mercury toxicity will suppress selenium. Copper toxicity will suppress molybdenum and both will suppress iodine and thyroid. So it can go back to that. So therefore you can have somebody with high copper and high mercury or low thyroid and that's causing their B2 not to activate and that's causing the B12 not to be utilized. So you'll have high levels of B12 in your blood. And you say, why is that happening? I don't take B12. Right. Wow. Interesting. And that must be then why you include it in sort of your third stage of your protocol. Because at that point, you have an idea of people who are responding versus who aren't responding. Right. And we're ready to address it, too, because there's also B vitamins are very testy when it comes to your biome. When your biome is off, the B vitamins don't you don't they're not utilized correctly, you don't absorb them correctly. That's a 
a major reason why somebody wants to get their biome in shape, even if they don't really care about candida, it's just to be able to absorb your nutrient nutrients correctly. So for somebody who's done maybe like a vitamin and mineral panel from Genovic Diagnostics and notices something is off there, can that be an indication yeah. as well? Yeah, it can be. It could be an indication of your biome, especially if you do a test that looks for your intrinsic factor in your stomach. Intrinsic factor was thought once of being a substance that which really helped you absorb B12 and folic acid. We found out now intrinsic factor in your stomach helps you absorb all vitamins. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So kind of anything on earth <laughs> might have a connection to candida. I mean, any sort of health condition that you could pretty much list out or think of may have its roots in a candida overgrowth. So or it's- can candida or SIBO or let's right. if we just say dysbiosis the, um, dysbiosis the definition is that in dysbiosis a person has an overgrowth of harmful flora versus friendly flora right and that means you have bad you have a bad biome so we can just say keep it that simple right if your biome is off anything any other illness is possible to, to uh, brew and stew right because that could also then lead to the leaky gut which can lead right. to the mast cell activation right and then it goes the dominoes start coming coming right. down so such a huge impact from something that I think is not really talked about that often. Um, I'm thinking back to, I at one point in my life was having these chronic headaches. And one of the things that I did as part of trying to find the root of having these chronic headaches was I did a, a food sensitivity panel. Mm -hmm. And nothing came up on the food sensitivity panel except for they tested for sensitivity to candida. And that came up for me. And I know that at that time, the doctor I was working with said, well, I don't really think there's anything to that because I see that with almost everybody's test is this sensitivity to candida and it could be candida overgrowth, but I don't really think there's anything there. So <laughs> now I'm kind of thinking back to that original test. I'm like, actually that could have been kind of everything at that well, point. He, see, he sees that in just about everybody who's coming to him. Are sick people coming to him or he, he was people? a chiropractor so anybody okay, that he else. ordered uh, a food sensitivity panel for so anybody that was having some of those whether it was chronic headaches those, or right anything allergy like well allergies re relate to candida of course you many people could say that candida is the thing that sets all allergies off our candida patients their hay fever is always worse hmm. you know when they're when they have candida the hay fever is worse if you have candida, your allergies or sensitivities to food, food-related yeasts is always worse. Right. So there's a direct correlation between allergies and candida because having candida makes you intrinsically allergic in the first place. So all these other things are just irritants that right. you're, you're throwing on top of it. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And and that's always been something I've seen if if we work with somebody for a leaky gut and and we see improvements there with the leaky gut and their gut microbiome, we oftentimes see improvements in asthma, hay fever, allergies, mm -hmm. food sensitivities. So it is interesting to think the people that haven't seen those improvements, probably what we didn't address was the candida piece. Candida. Yeah, the most important symptoms of leaky gut are um, airborne allergens, food allergens, chemical sensitivities, chemical intolerances, and also arthritic reactions that you get particularly when you eat or drink something or arthritic reactions that become more acute when you eat or drink things. Mm -hmm. 
those are really the key symptoms to leaky gut. It isn't pain. A lot of people think if they have pain in their in their stomach, it means they have leaky gut. That has nothing to do with it. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> Man. Well, we've I know we've covered such a, a gamut of information today, but I think that this has been such a valuable conversation because it's not something we've covered at all on this podcast. And it seems like it's such a huge part of having a healthy gut microbiome, which we do have quite a few episodes about gut health, but we've never gotten into the candida piece specifically. And that's because I don't feel like I'm an expert on it. So this has been great to have somebody who is truly an expert on it to come in and sh share with our audience, because I feel like this has been a missing piece of the puzzle for the information that this podcast has been able to provide to its listeners. Um, anything else that you would like to add to this conversation that we haven't talked about? Um, I don't think there's anything else we could add without going into uh, <laughs> a, a whole, a whole another two or three hours. So. I was going to say a whole new episode. Obviously, I yes, think, I think there's, got it, but, there's yeah. a lot of things we, we could talk about. But for anybody that this has resonated with, if you want to learn more, then definitely check out Dr. Biamonte's book, The Candida Chronicles, as a starting point. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, I always recommend if you're going to um, work on a health issue that you work with a health provider, with somebody who is qualified, who can walk you through the steps, especially if you are looking at trying some of the antifungals, whether they're herbal or pharmaceutical, you definitely want to do that under guidance with somebody who can walk you through a program. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm always a big fan of self-discovery not so much a big fan of self-treating. So, <laughs> okay, Well, you just pulled a string on something I will add. Yeah. As the, the pharmaceutical antifungals have a huge deficit. The first deficit is they are toxic and they could damage your liver and your kidneys. Right. The second deficit is they're not bro very broad spectrum. Right. So they, they tend to be very narrow. Uh, the other thing is they can't destroy dysbiosis. Right. When you take a, an antifungal, a pharmaceutical, it doesn't kill the Klebsiella, it doesn't kill the Citrobacter, it doesn't kill the Staphylococcus, it doesn't kill the Acromanium, it doesn't kill any of the dysbiotic bacteria, it only kills fungus, and it doesn't kill any of the parasites. And if you were able to walk in your intestinal tract with a flashlight, you would see nice, everything nice, normal flora, then you would come into this patch of gooey biofilm dripping down. And in that biofilm, you will find parasites, you'll find candida, you'll find harmful bacteria in that cluster. Yeah. You walk on by and then it clears up and then you'll come to another patch of it. That's how these things grow. They don't uniformly grow in your intestinal tract. They grow in these patches. And the bacteria, the parasites, the candida are all symbiotic, so they all tend to live together. And that's something anti uh, antifungal pharmaceuticals can't handle. Right. And those biofilms, um, for people who don't understand, can make it very difficult to treat any sort of infection because it can kind of pr protect the species that are living within it. Yeah, biofilm are made by specific bacteria, which very often we call marcons. They're mm -hmm. multiple antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And they make the biofilm as sort of like a, um, a, a shield. It's like a protective mucus, in a sense, that they put out there. Which, which also throws your own immune system off. So your own immune system sometimes can't focus its attention on the destruction of these organisms. Wow. Yeah, right. So sticking with the broad spectrum, natural 
antifungals, then that can also target some of those bacterial species. Bacteria works better. It's, that's why I do it. It works better. I'm not interested in supporting the pharmaceutical company. I'm interested <laughs> right. in what works better. Right, exactly. And, and, and hopefully protecting people from some of the more negative side effects that come with those synthetic components. Absolutely. Well, this has been a completely fascinating and eye-opening topic today. And I'm so glad that we have had you on Dr. Viamonte. And thank you so much for being on the show here with us. I'm very happy to contribute. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And for our listeners, check out Dr. Viamonte's book, The Candida Chronicles, and go be renegades. Thank you for listening to the Renegade Nutrition Podcast. Please keep in mind that this podcast is an educational service that provides general health information. The content on this podcast is not a substitute for direct, personal, professional medical care and diagnosis. You should always talk to your doctor before making a dietary or lifestyle change. Go be renegades! Go be renegades!